from the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. It's 8 o'clock at night in London. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the Eastern Seaboard. And it's 12 noon Pacific time. So, good evening, good afternoon, and almost good morning. Wherever you are, I'd like to welcome you to Litopia After Dark, the podcast for writers from Litopia Writers' Colony. Let's get straight on and introduce our panellists. From Fort Lauderdale, the Venice of America, I love saying that, we have writer and leading lawyer... Donna Borman. She's just finished writing A Writer's Guide to the Courtroom, which will be published in December this year, and she's now working on several young adult writing projects. Hello, Donna. How are things? I'm fabulous. I just came in from picking fruit in my backyard. It's paradise, isn't it? I mean, it must be so boring living in paradise. Oh, it's not at all. Well, everything crazy happens here, but uh, we have changes in weather, and we're going into hurricane season fairly soon, so that's always interesting. I mean, sometimes it, it goes from, like, 87 degrees to 85 degrees. Yes, that's that's a, that's a change. It was cold about a week ago. We had the fireplace going. That, that must have been must have made the local headlines. Next up is Beverly Gray, who comes from Indianapolis, and she is currently finishing a fantasy novel. How are you, Beverly, and how are things down with you? Oh, I'm very well, Peter. Uh, I haven't been out picking fruit, but I did go to the grocery store. That was always fun. <laughs> <laughs> That was very brave, I think, considering. What's, what's the temperature outside? Uh, it's 33, 34 degrees. We were supposed to get a big snowstorm, but it warmed up a little, so it came down more as sleet and freezing rain. Not much fun to drive on, but not as bad as it could have been. All right, well, continuing our international weather report, also working on a novel for the young adult market, is Dave Bartram. And Dave lectures in fine art, and he comes from England's West Country. And I'm always sort of kind of struggling, really, to describe to people where England's West Country basically is. Um, it's it's Archer's country, isn't it, really, Dave? Uh, yeah, I think they're supposed to be... Coxwoldy and a bit north of that, aren't they? I think Borchester and all of that. I don't know where the West Country officially starts at Dorset and Somerset and kind of works its way down, doesn't it? I think so. Well, I've got of... no idea, really. <laughs> You're talking about probably um, getting on for Weymouth and up in a kind of arc up to Bristol, I suppose. That's the West Country, maybe Cheltenham and Gloucester. That kind of bottom left-hand corner, pretty much. All right, well, that's very very clear if you already know the place, of course. And this week, we're delighted to have a very special guest with us, Karen Winborn, who's Managing Director of Classical Comics here in the UK. Hello, Karen. Very good to have you. Hello there, folks. Thank you. I'm in the West Country, too, I think. Oh, my goodness. We're being overrun by West Country folk. You are indeed, yes. So we're just going up this end. Um, yeah, Thornbury, I guess, which is South Gloucestershire, counts, I think, doesn't it, Dave? So, yeah. Just about, I think, yeah. It depends how far west you go. It's like going north, what you mean by south. Well, yeah, very parochial here, folks. I think we've completely <laughs> lost all our North American lists overnight. Um, right, come on, what, let's focus. What's been happening over the past seven days? Well, Amazon have announced their trading figures for last year. And total revenue for the entire company was up 39% to $14.84 billion, almost $15 billion, with net income, that's profit, 
up 150% to $476 million, which isn't bad, because I can remember when people were saying Amazon was never going to turn a profit. But analysts were not happy, according to Publishers Weekly, saying that they were frustrated by Amazon's low profit margins. And Chairman Jeff Bezos says uh, Amazon will continue to try and lower prices while using its scale that's its size, to improve margins. He said that uh, in some of its newer categories, there's a lot of room to get better prices from suppliers, and you always hear that, don't you? Let's screw the suppliers. And that even in some older segments, like books, there is room, he says, to operate more efficiently. don't really like the sound of that, as far as uh, authors are concerned. He also said that demand for the Kindle, and that's something we've been covering a lot, um, the demand for the Kindle has outpaced expectations, and the company is scrambling, he says, scrambling to fill orders. And he talked of very strong demand, although um, he didn't actually give figures, sales figures, and I would be very interested, actually, to know what those sales figures are. Asked how the sale of digital downloads of media products will impact Amazon, Bezos said that in the long term, digital sales should be a boon to the e-tailer. So it's obviously the coming thing, and we will be keeping our eye on it. Closer to home, it was the AGM, that's the Annual General Meeting, the Association of Authors' Agents here in the UK, which I went along to. And, of course, it was a totally secret affair, which I possibly, I cannot possibly divulge any information about. Uh, I think an agent did uh, a few years ago, and his body was found hanging under Blackfriars Bridge the next morning. Um, but I can tell you that after we all exchanged funny handshakes... We went on to uh, what is traditionally the next item on the agenda, which is the official burning of unsolicited submissions uh, with occasional mocking. And we then sacrificed several uh, minor poets. I mean, come on, guys, they're poets. Who's going to miss them? Um, And we ended by uh, taking the agent's secret oath. Of course, I can't tell you everything that uh, that it says. But it does start like this. I promise not to return clients' phone calls, nor will I ever pay for my own lunch. So that was my week. <laughs> now on to on to matters more serious. Wham, pow, egad. Classical Comics. Classical Comics founder Clive Bryant. He had a big idea in a bar about 18 months ago. Well, we've all had big ideas in bars, and the next morning they don't seem very big at all, if uh, that is you're lucky enough to remember them. But Clive did, and he turned his idea into a new publishing company, Classical Comics. He'd just been reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, I think, that we've all heard of, uh, The Tipping Point. It was published some years ago now. And it, put for, put, no, it puts forward the idea that big changes happen when a tipping point occurs. What would happen, Clive wondered, if more young people appreciated fine literature? Surely that would have to have a positive effect on society. And that's how classical comics came into existence. It's got a mission to turn the classics, such as Shakespeare, Dickens and Bronte, books that young people often find boring, into cool new comics that kids can't wait to read. Well, the media coverage of their launch has been pretty good, although some voices have been raised in rather snooty disapproval. The Queen's English Society has accused them of dumbing down Shakespeare, and Simon Usborne, writing in The Independent, says Shakespeare must be turning in his grave. Of course, in theatrical terms, there's nothing that hasn't been attempted when restaging or reinterpreting Shakespeare. So, should we be outrageously happy or simply outraged that Shakespeare is getting the Spider-Man treatment? And tonight, we are delighted to welcome to Latopia After Dark our special guest, Karen Wenborn, Managing Director of Classical Comics, who is going to tell us all about this exciting new venture. Karen, have I got um, the uh, the backstory more or less right? Backstory is perfectly correct, and the reason... 
reason why Clive remembers the idea is because he doesn't drink. Uh-huh. Okay. So, well, we've, <laughs> so we've, we've saved ourselves one lawsuit there already. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. The, the idea was um, originally, we, 18 months ago, we were incredibly naive and we thought you just walked into publishing, published a book and it went on to Amazon and, you know, that was that. We're both business people, but we thought it would be fairly easy access. Yeah. Um, so we embarked upon this, and it's a brilliant idea, and we thought it had never been done before. And then, shock horror, after some research, we found that actually it had. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. So that graphic novels had been produced, um, like Shakespeare and the classics, well, starting with Classics Illustrated, if you like, so many, many years ago. Um, so that was a bit of a surprise for us. But then Clive's really inspired idea was the three different text versions so that we've got Shakespeare in original text, plain text, and quick text. Mm. So Henry V is in three versions, all with the same artwork, but the text varies between the three books. And that has meant that applications in education have been massive, which sounds very formal. Basically, it means that eight-year-old can read Shakespeare. Right. And they actually love them because you can actually see the gore, the violence, the witchcraft, <laughs> the mysterious, you know, boys in the playground stuff. It's how they live their lives. It's how they want their books. So um, um, just, just, just to get this clear, you're publishing three editions um, of, the, of essentially the same work. And are they targeted at slightly different age groups? Um, they're targeted at different skill levels or at, if it's an adult reader, how much time they want to spend. Right. Um, I, I think I can admit in this company that I found Shakespeare difficult. Sure. I think as Clive um, originally said in an email to you, I've got some two and a half thousand books in here, but I couldn't get my head around translating the language as well as reading the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I can do it because I read the plain English version, which is our mid-range version. Once I've got the story, I can concentrate on the language. And it appears to work the same for children too. So it's not an age range thing. It's a skill level thing. Okay. Um, I'm going to bring in um, uh, Dave here because Dave actually works in education. So um, and I, don't, I, I don't know what your attitude is towards us at all, Dave. Um, it looks great to me. The idea that of, of using comic book art to get across great stories like Shakespeare seems excellent. Um, the skill level thing makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm looking looking at the website now. As a, as an art and design person, I've got a bit of a taste issue about the artwork, but it is literally a taste issue. I like something a bit rougher and freer, but that's probably not appropriate to the market or the intended audience. But Which one are you looking at, Dave? I'm looking at Henry V. Ah, right. Yeah, Henry V is far more like a French tapestry. Artwork is another whole conversation because we've oh, tried to match yeah. the artwork with the books, which is, as you say, it's, it's subjective and it's not easy. But in things like um, A Christmas Carol, it's very Victorian. In Richard III, it's very dark. In Macbeth, yeah. it's very, wow, bow me, God, <laughs> because it's a Spider-Man artist. Yeah. Um, so they they really do vary. Henry is um, quite different, quite formal and stylized. So yes, I agree with you there, Dave. Yeah. Yeah, and it is it is literally a taste thing. You know, it's not a criticism; it's just a, a comment. But I think when you think about getting people to access good stories and serious literature, um, it'll work. I really think it'll work. I think it's a great idea. I think one of the things that um, 
we didn't realise much about education and how literature was used in classrooms. I mean, who does outside of an educator? Or you call them in America or a teacher in England. Um, and we found out that the th initiatives like um, inclusive classrooms um, and every child counts. And in, in one classroom, the whole class can read from these books or effectively the same book, but actually can have one that meets their skill levels, which means that the teaching is very inclusive. Well, yeah, I, 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 sorry, sorry, Dave. I, I'm really disappointed, actually, because I thought you were going to be a complete curmudgeon here. Um, and, you know, just, <laughs> as, as, as if I could ever be a curmudgeon about anything. <laughs> I, I mean, I warn you now. I am actually I am wearing sarcastic boots this evening. Literally, the the model Good. boots. Yeah, is sarcastic, and they, and they, they suit you. They do. Yeah. They <laughs> perfect choice. I didn't know it at the time when I bought them, but there you go. But no, I th I think the key thing about anything like this is how it's applied in the classroom. If it's used as a, a stepping stone to deeper understanding, it's great. If it's used as a substitute for deeper understanding, it's not so great. And that's ultimately down to the person who handles it in the classroom at the time. Yeah, you're right. The, the thing we can do is support them with teachers' resources and whiteboard resources. Um, that, that do make a lot of difference. And the teachers that we've spoken to and have used the resources have been absolutely thrilled. And that's in the um, States as well as in England. Wow. Okay, well, good uh, good cue there. Let's um, bring in our two stateside contributors. Uh, Beverly Donner, your views, please. Well, I remember when I was a little girl how much I enjoyed the classic illustrated comics and the classic junior illustrated comics. I just loved them. And then when I got older and started reading the books on which they were based, it was like coming across old friends, but friends that had new layers that I hadn't encountered and so it was fresh and I think it's a fabulous idea and I especially like the idea of, of tiering your books Karen to skill level so that you know the teachers don't have to use just one but can use two or three depending on the uh, uh, students in their class I, I you know I think you're onto something really great there well my, my only hope now is Donna Donna are you going to say something acerbic well, we don't speak the Queen's English here, so I don't care what the Queen's English Society says. Um, I do <laughs> care that studies do link illiteracy and increased crime rates. And in fact, uh, I was reading that California and Arizona actually calculate how many prison cells they have to build based on the fourth grade reading scores wow. and testing. Wow. So there's a direct correlation. I think it's a great idea. Um, I, I really didn't know much about graphic novels until recently, but I've been considering turning one of my manuscripts into a graphic novel, so I started looking at them. And I found that the graphic novel section of my bookstore is almost as large as the children's section. So obviously the visuals are, are really appealing to the young adult market. Um, I think that there are so many versions of, say, Jane Eyre, why not a graphic novel? Anything that keeps people reading is a good thing. And doesn't it beat the heck out of Cliff Notes? Um, I also saw on the website that they're doing, um, uh, they're, they're using it for English as a second language classes. And what a great idea to have that visual as, as a tool because my, my six-year-old is learning to read and um, they teach them to use the pictures and the picture books as cues. So why not for adults who are learning to read? 
Right. Okay. Well, uh, d- depressingly uniform. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to try and say something uh, controversial. Oh, go on, here. please, sir. Uh, it's going to be difficult here, because I actually do think it's a really good idea. Um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, Don has just answered one of my questions, actually. I was going to ask you. I mean, Clive had this idea that literature could exercise a civilizing effect on society. Um, I was going to ask you if, um, if, if that's all it was. Was it, ju- was it just a hunch, or is, is there actually any evidence? I mean, one suspects that that probably is true, but uh, do you know it for a fact? Um, well, we gathered the evidence afterwards um, because the idea was such a great one. Right. Looking at things like in this country, I believe the last figures I saw were um, 80% of prison inmates were illiterate. Jeez. Or illiterate. Jeez. Which does say something if you then compare it to the rest of the population. Yeah. Sorry, I was just yeah. going to say there's, there's an interesting precedent, isn't it? Or, or something going alongside the famous case of the American tank manual that had to be done as a comic book because too many of the soldiers wouldn't understand the written word. And I think if, if oh, you know, yes. weapons of destruction have to be uh, written in comic book form, it, it won't hurt us to have a bit of Macbeth, will it, really? I think it's it's been very interesting and people have, we've had the dumbing down comments. I found that rather difficult because if you're publishing the complete original text, yeah, didn't see how we were dumbing it down. And they were saying then, oh, the children are missing out on the language. Well, most eight-year-olds couldn't grasp the language. Mm. So I, I didn't see that. So I'm putting the doing down argument in for you, Peter, since nobody else. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, you've seen sort of two voices raised in sort of... I mean, rather, people can be ever so snobbish about these things, actually. What sort of reaction have you had generally? I mean, has, has, has there been anyone really substantially who's said this is a dreadful idea? No, apart from the Society of Queen's English or Queen's English Society. Um, <laughs> And I'm with you on that one. Which is, which is not recognised in the States in any case, apparently. Well, it's not recognised in Newcastle either. So yeah. that's absolutely... <laughs> um, but we've got the National Association for Teaching English in this country, um, which is supporting them because we've got the full original text version in. Um, they think they're fine. Teachers just love them. And we've had children buy them with the pocket money which for me was the biggest thrill ever. I was going to ask you, um, who, who tends to buy them? Is it, are you mainly selling into the educational market? Are you selling to parents or, or what? Oh, at the, at the moment, the first book came out in November. So we've got really three months worth of um, knowledge and stats on how the sales are going. And at the moment, it's completely split. Um, but we're going to the education show this month and the teachers are just so enthusiastic because they want something new to take into the classroom. Sure. Yeah. And, and and this does it for them. What are you doing differently? Um, because you, I'm very interested in, in both of your backgrounds, actually, you and, and Clive. But what are you doing differently since you discovered that people had tried to produce comics like this before? Well, our idea was always to make um, the highest quality book that we could. Yeah. And it was going to be in full colour on the heaviest, most expensive paper. So it would last in schools. Um and we put the research into the end pieces of the books. Um, it was all about quality. And I think that's a huge um, differentiator hmm. because these things are a massive investment in both time and money. It, they it must take, be, yeah. I think it's, it's well over 12 months it's taken for Macbeth from first dot on the page. Um, and the rest of the books that are coming out this year were all commissioned this time last year. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it, it's sort of like having a baby. Yeah. It takes a bit longer. A bit longer, actually. Yeah. Kara, yeah. um, I'm very interested in, in your... I mean, you're, you're, you've got a generally broad business background, haven't you? 
Yeah. So what on earth did you think <laughs> when you first came into this rather strange little sort of way business backwater of publishing? I mean, what, what were the things that struck you as most odd to begin with? Oh, why does everyone take so long to respond to anything? Yeah. Um, I'm probably going to be shot at dawn for this, aren't I? Um, yeah, probably. That was, that, yeah, <laughs> that was the main thing. Um, I'm, I'm used to speed and I like speed and I work really quickly and it wasn't happening fast enough for me, thank you. Yeah. Um, but because my background's been in large corporate organisations, it was interesting getting really involved in something completely different. So it wasn't a case of having a thousand people that would cover every angle of everything. It was doing it all yourself and finding out for yourself. So that was, that was new for you too? Um, it's a long time since, I, yeah, yeah. since I've done anything like this. But it's great because you make fantastic contacts and most people have been so helpful. Yeah. Um, so we've had quite a bit of, you know, offers of hands to pull us in one direction or the other. Um, so the, the, the difference is, I mean, it, it's all business when it comes down to the, the balance sheets, I guess. It, you know, it's all the same. It's about what, at the end of the day, you think, oh, God, I've achieved something. Look at that book. Look what we did. Mm. And if that makes a difference to people, I'd never get that working in financial services, would I? Wow, you, you sound like an author, actually. That's the sort of satisfaction that most, mostly authors get. Which, in a way, you kind of are, actually, isn't it? <laughs> well, sort of. You feel like a sort of stepmother to the book, mm. though you've been through the scripts and the artwork and everything else. But I've actually put together a lot of the teacher's notes for, the, for Macbeth and did a lot of the research into the real Macbeth, um, which is an absolutely fascinating story. Mm. Um, but I can't pronounce the Scottish names. But I, so I do feel more like this, is, this particular book's mine. Yeah. Oh, it's your baby. I'm afraid we're all in, in a rather boring agreement here. We think it's a completely brilliant idea and uh, more power to your publishing album. Um, just uh, give us a sort of clue as to how many books you're, you know, you've currently got out and what the uh, future targets are going to be. We've got Henry V came out in November. Macbeth comes out in three weeks' time, 25th of February. And then, mind you, I can't say specifically which date any book is going to come out on because it's down to the artists. Right. Um, so we, we all know artists are quite temperamental. <laughs> the guys, it, it does take a long time. And you've got to remember, so a lot of these comic book artists are used to doing um, six pages at once or, you know, a small 30-page comic book. And these are 144 pages. So it's a, it's a big mountain for them to climb to. Anyway, we've got Jane Eyre, which is hand-drawn watercolours by John M. Burns. Um, Great Expectations, Dracula, Frankenstein. A Christmas Carol, which is looking superb. Mind you, so is Frankenstein. He's a very young artist, Declan Sharvey. Um, he's doing a brilliant job there. I've probably missed quite a few of the books out. It's probably the Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, The Tempest, Richard III. Blimey. Um, and we're looking at doing Canterville Ghost. Yeah, this is the thing. We're, we're so enthusiastic. It's like, oh, what can we do next? But then you need to find an artist and a colorist yes. and a letter. Yeah. So, yeah. So a lot, hopefully. Well, fabulous, Karen. I mean, you know, you've got our official seal of approval. And uh, I hope you uh, stick around, actually, because you've got one or two other quite interesting uh, topics to discuss tonight on Le Taper After Dark. And moving on, we've got, we've got something that might possibly be relevant to you. Most of the mainstream media seems to have actually missed this story so far, but we can report that best-selling author Paolo Coelho has apparently been pirating his own work for years. And blogger uh, Sean Dodson writes this in his Guardian blog. This is what he says. A few years ago, a friend of mine recommended The Alchemist by the famous author Paolo Coelho. I hope I've pronounced that properly. I'm sure somebody will tell me if I haven't. It turned out to be a real waste of 
money, says Sean. I so dislike the overly simplistic and sentimental style that I swiftly donated it to my charity shop. But if I'd have known about the Pirate Coelho, a blog established by the million-selling author himself, I might not have wasted my money on the alchemist after all. You see, Coelho has been happily, quote, pirating his own work for years, spreading electronic versions of his novels over the BitTorrent file-sharing network for potential readers to download. The Pirate blog encourages potential readers to seek out the electronic versions in several language translations by helpfully providing links to the files. He recently told a conference that rather than hurt his sales, this act of self-piracy has actually sent them through the roof. Publishers are understandably wary of giving away free digital copies, but what do they really have to fear, says Sean, a Canadian science fiction writer, Corey Doctorow, who we've referenced once or twice um, on this podcast, and hopefully we might get him as a guest, has circulated tens of thousands of electronic editions of his novels and short stories, and has helped to send his sales soaring too, if not quite Coelho-like proportions. Similarly, marketing gurus like Seth Godwin, who I think probably started this trend, actually, of giving his books away, have reaped huge benefits by allowing their readers to try before they buy. Uh, And he ends by saying, to my mind, publishers should take note of the strategy's commercial success and encourage other authors to hoist the pirate flag. Um, Seems like a good one for our resident lawyer. Donna, what do you think of this rather strange story? Well, haven't bookstores been doing this for years? You pull the book off the shelf, have a coffee, read it some, and if you like it, you buy it. If it works, I say, why not try it? Uh, I wonder why it works, though. It probably goes back to our discussions of these e-books um, that ultimately we like the feel and the ease of a book in our hands. I read first chapters online all the time. A lot of best-selling authors do it, and it gives me a, a good sense of the book. Uh, so I, I don't see really a downside to it. I I wonder if this can also tie in with what the Japanese are doing with downloading the uh, chapters to cell phones that Donna told us about a few weeks ago. Um, for some authors, providing their older books, you know, the ones that are no longer selling much or at all, that you know that could generate interest in them to pave the way for the current book. Um, I think for new authors, though, it could be a trap as well as a benefit. I mean, it just depends on whether you get the buzz going. And Well, in this case, I think they're using the whole novel, aren't they, and, and uh, putting the whole thing online. Um, I'm wondering if, if you could actually use it in conjunction with something like the Kindle and say if you like this and want a more convenient format link to the e-version that you can buy. Yeah, yeah that, would, that, that could work that way too. Yeah, I, I just think it, it's kind of a rather, it's kind of like going fishing on the internet, isn't it? With the, the bait is you could get a book like this if you want, you know. It's uh, quite amusing in a way because that's what it is, isn't it? It's like, we'll dangle this, and somebody will bite, and then they'll want something else that isn't available there, so we'll have to go somewhere else. It's very clever. I think I think absolutely right. For a new author, it would probably be commercial suicide, but for somebody who's recognized and has a track record and all the rest of it, I think it would be uh, very beneficial, I'm sure. Karen, you're a publisher. How do you feel about giving it all away? <laughs> um, our files are so huge that um, <laughs> most people can't download them. Um how do I feel? I would always buy a physical book, but I'm a physical book sort of person, and I can't read more than a few pages on screen. Hmm. And I've not tried a Kindle. And I like to read in bed. And would a Kindle be a nice thing to sort of, you know? I, I don't know. I really don't know. You guys have had a good look at the Kindle, so you'll have a better idea than me. But giving things away, I mean, we'd have, we've got um, free downloads and free chapters. And they're on love reading that you know that in all of the usual places, 
And that does act as a taster so people can decide whether they like it or not before they buy. I think it can work if it's, a, as I said, an established author and, you know, titles from 10, 15 years ago to, to whet the appetite so that people will buy the newest book. For example, Ken Follett's uh, new one. It's been so many years since I've read uh, Pillars of the Earth. I had to go buy a copy just to read it again so I'd be ready to read the sequel. And it would have been awfully nice to, you know, download it and just kind of refresh that way. And I think uh, I think used that way, it could actually be very helpful. It's not really for the author. I don't see that it hurts any more than people going to the library to get the first book and then purchasing the sequel. That's a really good point. Yeah, it is yeah. like the library, isn't it? Yeah, that is a very good comparison, actually, Beverly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it completely goes against um, established wisdom to give products away. And, you know, uh, that's why people start to talk about piracy, and especially with electronic books. And we, we're going to be talking about the dreaded ebook again in just a moment, actually. But with something like that, that's such a slippery thing. I mean, files can be exchanged, and you've got BitTorrent, and you've got all kinds of other ways of, of just effortlessly sharing files. And then, of course, you've got the accursed DRM, Digital Rights Management, that a lot of the music industry now actually is starting to abandon because it's created so much bad feeling amongst their customers. Um, You know, with, with files so easy to exchange there is the feeling there that it's it's something that unless you're very careful the revenue stream could dry up completely and so it's a fine judgment really i think it's a fine judgment between whether you're actually hurting your revenue by say giving a hundred thousand downloads away or whether you're actually increasing revenue because a small proportion of those hundred thousand downloads will actually go on to either buy the file properly or buy the the physical printout Tough choice, though. It probably would have a bad effect on nonfiction because a lot of people would use nonfiction just as a reference, and if you can get it online, why pay for it? Yeah. Yes, yes, that, that is true. I would have thought the broader debate is is not so much about downloads of this and downloads of that, but the whole notion of kind of multi-platform sales, isn't it? Right through from graphic novels, downloads, books, films, video games, or computer games, as they call The fact that ultimately we're in a position now where something that could once upon a time could only be put onto a papyrus scroll or into a, a very large book written by a select few who could read and write, right the way through to accessibility to all these things in all these different ways. And I think unless we as individuals um, and the publishing industry embrace that sudden kind of plethora of, of means of distribution, it's going to get left behind. So it ha- people have to do something because it will just go beyond them and overwhelm them and leave them behind. Stun silence follows. Yeah, I'm just... <laughs> as, as idiot stops talking for a moment. I mean, it's interesting. We we're, t- were talking about dumbing down, you know, of, of the previous article. The, something I, I meant to say about it and completely forgot. Many years ago when I had a, a vague interest in things, there was a very good computer game, uh, which, which actually was quite philosophical and thoughtful and the violence was tempered by ethical choices and at the end of it you had quotes from Voltaire and, and people like this and it it wasn't dumbing down at all it was a computer game but it had a very powerful message which is that governments always do, don't always do nice things and the bad guys aren't always bad and you have to make difficult choices in hard times and the same thing applies to any of these things the platform is the platform the way it's distributed is the way it's distributed what you choose to distribute and what values you want to be attached to it are more important than how it's actually put across. Mm. If you want to see um, an online game about Shakespeare, there is one. 
Oh, where cool. you have to fight your way across the universe and match quotes up and recognise where they come from. Wow. <laughs> That's probably a bit beyond me. Zoinks, it's about as far as I go. I totally can. Just um, hold that thought for a moment, because right at the end, we're going to go around and ask people for their recommendations or sort of useful or cool websites, either for writers or just in general, really. So um, bring that one up at the end. Let's, let's just sort of extend this a little bit to the next news item, which is inevitably, I suppose, you know, as, as um, the, the weeks and months go by, we are going to be talking more and more and more about the ebook and digital downloads and all the rest of it. It is inevitable and inescapable. Our next item is called The 15% Solution. Now, Publishing News, that's a journal in the UK, is reporting that the head of Random House in the UK has announced that an e-book reader will be launched in the UK this year. And they're proposing a royalty for authors of just 15%. That's one five, 15% of net receipts. In the States, the royalty is based on the more advantageous list price, and at least one publishing house currently offers 30%. Now, I remember um, not so long ago when Random House admittedly stateside were initially suggesting 50-50, sharing the, the royalty 50% with the author, 50% with the publisher. And of course, even 15%, 15% looks pretty good when you compare it to the standard starting paperback royalty, which is something in the region of about 7.5%. But 15% to the author does mean... 85% of the digital download to the publisher. And uh, one rather wonders how they can justify this. So, authors, and indeed one publisher, what do we think about this? That seems well, low to me. I was just going to say, it's the de this delivery technique is still in its infancy. My guess is that the, the royalties are going to fluctuate for some time, just while everyone's sort of feeling the waters and eventually it should level off to, to some sort of industry guidance. Um, it, 15 percent seems very low to me too because the uh, publishers you know the the old rationale of well they have to you know print the book and and all that their costs are not there. Mm to do the e-book. Well, they say they are. They, um, they say that uh, the cost of what they call digital warehousing, and I'm, I'm having a hard time in my mind imagining what a digital warehouse is, but they say the costs of digital warehousing are so huge, there's no way they're e even going to start making money until 2013. I don't, I don't understand that either, but, you know, I, it may be if it's, uh, you know, the cost of maintaining the website and everything. I, I, I've never really been involved in that side of the internet, Peter, so I don't really know what the uh, cost is when you, you have to factor in how many people are hitting and the cost of downloading. So they, they may be uh, correct about that. It, it, I don't know. I, I still don't see where that equates to the cost of even printing 500 books. So, yeah, uh, fifteen seems a little low to me. Thirty seems a little fair. There, there are a lot of issues that this raises, and I, I think the danger is that um, what you say, Beverly, is going to sort of settle out to a sort of happy medium. I think eventually, um, I, I would assume it would. I mean, the marketplace kind of helps determine that. It's like any other business. If you have three publishers doing the fifty percent, and then you know, two do 15 and others do 20 to 30. I, I would think it'd be like anything that eventually there'll be kind of a common 
you know, some will scale up, some will scale down. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, it's probably going to come down to the individual writers, whether they're going to accept the 15% or if they're going to say, no, I want more. And, you know, it depends. The more established writers will probably be able to demand and get the higher royalty and it's whether the break-in new authors are willing to accept the 15% or if they prefer to know I don't want to do that deal so I'm going to hold out till someone pays me more. Yeah. Well, this is a first salvo, and it certainly is a, a salvo. It's you know, it's it's the first move in a negotiating war, really. Um, initially with agents, because this was talked about um, at an agents meeting with Random House. Um, but the danger is that those authors who you've just talked about, um, who are perhaps unpublished, it might be their first time, um, really don't have much of a negotiating position, and by picking off smaller authors and indeed smaller agents then you what you do is you build a precedent so you can say i'm sorry but that's our standard rate well this is actually the the second time they reduced they they reduced their rates from 50 to uh, 30 back in 2004 it's been kind of an ongoing issue in the authors guild which i i try to follow along with and um they're out of sync with some of the major houses that still offer 50-50. Apparently, HarperCollins still offers a 50-50 split. What I think it is, it's an indication that they believe ebooks are going to take off with the Kindle and the like. Um, I think electronic rights are going to be big. It's going to be cutting edge for creative works all over, which is what the Writers Guild is taking a stand on right now. I think it's worth pointing out the precedent in the music industry, and I think the publishers are ultimately going to catch cold on this. You've got bands like Radiohead issuing their label and doing it directly over the internet with their customers and offering very reasonable prices and free downloads and all sorts of things, and their album has gone huge. Other older artists like Gary Moore and Michael Schenker are doing very well directly to their audience. Thank you very much. Once an author has a profile, they will be able to say, okay, publisher, you can keep your 15%, thanks. I'm going to go direct to the public who want my works, and I'll do it that way. And they are going to catch a cold if they get too stingy on this, because it's already starting to happen in the music industry. We've got a comment from um, one of our uh, viewers to the live uh, podcast, because as you know, we record called this Friday night, 8 o'clock London time, 3 o'clock Eastern time. Um, and anyone is very welcome to, uh, to to watch as we record. And there's a comment here from Chonamodra who says, bandwidth is not that expensive, especially considering you can offset any costs through advertising. And saying you can expect them to reduce their rates is optimistic. The execs said that sort of thing to the Writers Guild in 1988 with DVDs. And did they increase the rates once DVDs took off? And she answers her own question and says, nope. The, the question that, um, that Dave has just posed there, I think, is absolutely uh, central, really. Um, if, if a publisher is only going to give you 15% of what they receive, and, and the other you know, thing one needs to establish very carefully is how do you define net receipts? Because if you're in the movie business, net receipts is, is precisely zero of zero. If you're only going to get 15% from a publisher, why not do it yourself? Why not offer downloads yourself and keep 100% of the gross? And that raises the bigger question, actually, of in the digital future, what do we need publishers for? And let's throw in agents as well. What will we need publishers and agents for? Any thoughts on that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Other than you still need the 
infrastructure, perhaps, to get the word out? I mean, anyone can have a blog, anyone can set it up so you can download, but how do you get all those millions of people to come to you as opposed to the other author next door on the other internet side? I mean, perhaps that will be the role of the agents and publishers to take over, maybe they'll take over the bookstore function, the publishing houses. Yes. Well, good marketing. I mean, that's that's certainly absolutely one thing that Come I think... Come to our site, get our books directly. You know, why do you need to go to Barnes & Noble kind yeah. of thing? I don't know. I, again, I go back to my comment before that it, it's still in its infancy, this whole technology. I'm not sure we can really predict what's going to happen. I mean, back to Donna's point a few weeks ago about the Japanese are actually downloading chapters to their cell phones. I mean, it, it, it's wide open. Uh, the advent of the Kindle and other uh, uh, readers, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I just can't even begin to predict. Well, you know, bookstores we- are growing all over where you're seeing the advent of new bookstores. And I think people find that the concept of the bookstore with the coffee shop very appealing. So I'm wondering if maybe uh, some clever bookstore owners might develop a model where they could uh, use print on demand and bookstore owners could actually take over control of the publishing industry. That's a possibility too. Well, I think the the, the role of uh, agents and publishers, certainly to, to somebody trying to get into this whole business, is they provide a degree of credibility to your product. You know, an agent provides, amongst other things, credibility to a publisher that it's worth consideration. And a publisher, once they've put the money and the time and the effort into it and putting it on the shelf are actually giving credibility to the consumer to say this is worth taking a look at. A download on a website is just a download on a website if nobody's actually put their money where their mouth is and actually done something to promote it and push it. It's just another thing with no recommendation attached to it. So credibility is very, very important. Yeah, that gets back to my idea of the author next door kind of thing on the internet. And that's... Uh, you said it better than I, w- I did, Dave. That's what I was trying to get at. This this was um, a, a fear that um, a previous um, CEO, I think, of Penguin, some years ago, raised when she coined this this term that I've mentioned once or twice called disintermediation. And she could foresee a time which is actually, I think, probably closer than most people think when publishers would no longer control the means of distribution. And the, the classical answer to the question, I think, why, do you, why does an author need a publisher? I mean, there are, there are those things like good editing, good marketing, and all the rest of it. But in the past, the publisher has controlled the means of distribution. And the only alternative an author has had is self-publishing, which occasionally works, but is, you know, I mean, it's, it's starting a whole, whole business, basically. Um, and it's very often the route to uh, frustration and, and failure. Um, if publishers no longer do that, if they no longer control the means of distribution, in other words, out to out from their warehouse, uh, printing, manufacturing, out from the warehouse into the bookstores, and if if authors can do that just as well electronically, then it does create this in, it, this huge, great sort of crisis of confidence, which which I believe publishing, especially adult trade publishing, is actually entering now. And I, I think there will be a lot of soul-searching amongst publishers, the more intelligent ones, um, asking themselves, what is it that we actually contribute, rather than just sort of contro- having a m- monopoly-type control uh, and putting ourselves in between the, the reader and the author. What it, why would people come 
to us and actually work through us. So perhaps it's not all bad news, actually. Perhaps it will force some publishers to, um, you know, to market themselves more effectively and, and their authors. It actually has parallels with the, the, the failure of the communist experiment, doesn't it? Sorry, that's a real tangent. What? You, what? <laughs> you, you, you just said, you know, uh, you know, the, the writers control the, the means of distribution, or the publishers do. And of course, Marx famously said, you know, um, you know, the workers own the means of production. And what happens when the workers own the means of production? You end up with multifarious networks, breakdowns of communication, ultimately a return to mass centralisation to try and control and distribute goods. So, what sounds like complete lunacy on my part hopefully makes some sense in yeah. that the whole thing will become wonderfully anantiadromic and if you don't know the word look it up it's great it means um could, the, could the you spell it uh probably not <laughs> um it begins with enantiodromia is the is the, it, it, it is the inevitable turning of things into their opposites wow uh and it's kind of quite a profound word. It sums up life, the universe, and everything in a single word. It's great. Well, uh, you've just given I, us the uh, the title for this week's podcast. <laughs> oh, <good>. oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the invoice oh, is in great. the post. Uh, but you know, <laughs> it, it's what happens, and it's what will happen. These things go in big cycles. Karen, you're you're a publisher with your feet firmly in bricks and mortar. I mean, you, you're you're into the physical distribution of of your of your goods. Um, and I, I can't see really how it could be otherwise, actually, because you're selling items that are actually rather nice, aren't they? I mean, they're in full colour, they're beautiful illustrations. It's, it's almost a tactile experience. You, you'll never get that from a screen, will you? It's a real pleasure talking to you guys, I'll tell you. Um, no, you you wouldn't. On the One thing is that having listened to you folk talking, although we're publishers, we're actually more like creators. Yeah. We don't take somebody else's work. We're thinking about the whole design and how it's going to look. So yeah, I get that I feeling. See what you mean about yeah, you're more like an author. Well, yeah, you're, you're probably right. Yeah. Um, on the terms of, of of selling them in any way other than physically, um, have you heard of Daily Lit, the American um, organisation who send out excerpts to your email or your telephone? A bit like the Japanese thing with phones, but it's in America and it's both ways. Well, they're looking at. Um, setting up so that they can send out graphic novels too, and we'd be happy to be part of that. So we're exploring other um, means of access for the books, but as I said, the, the file size does make them rather unwieldy. Yeah. But we'd be more than happy to do that. It doesn't have to be physical, hmm. but for me, it, it's picking one up and feeling it, and books just smell good. Yeah, I agree. You don't get that from a Kindle, I wouldn't have thought. No, no, definitely. Um, Thank you very much. Very thought-provoking discussion, that. Now, some very good ideas um, emerged from that. So, finally, we're sort of slowly moving towards the end, end of our, our show here, which we, we try to keep to about 45 minutes or so. Um, so, finally, it would be nice, I think, uh, for a change, because we, we often go around asking our panellists to recommend uh, books or maybe other, other media films and uh, stuff like that that they've, they've seen and they'd like to share and recommend to other people. I thought it might be nice this week just to um, ask people if there's anything, because the theme really has been very electronic, very internet-orientated. Um, to ask people if there are any websites that they regularly visit or can recommend um, being particular, uh, particularly interest 
two authors. Um, Donna, would you like to fire first? Well, I'll give you my top seven because I'm on the web a lot about writing. Wow. Um, Latopia.com, of course, uh-huh. um, is my number one writing website, um, and I'm totally addicted to it. Um, writersmarket.com it has fa- fantastic features. They've got a submission tracker. You can look up agents and publishers. You can link to their sites. It gives you their, the, the websites. There's also a Writers Market UK site, which I assume has similar features. Uh, Publishersweekly.com. You can sign up for newsletters by area of interest. Uh, they have a specific children. They also have a comics week for graphic novels. Um, the guide to literaryagents.com uh, has a free le- newsletter that tells about new agencies, new submission guidelines, tips, and conferences that provide opportunities to meet agents. And um, I know on Latopia we've been talking about writers' conferences, so I've promised to start uh, putting some of those uh, conferences onto the Latopia site as well. Uh, WritersDigest.com has interviews, videos, tips, contests, and books to buy, of course. Um, Predators and Editors is definitely a must for those looking for agents and um, publishers. Um, It's at anotherrealm.com slash P-R-E-D-E-D-I-T-O-R-S.com. And it has advice and contests and chat, but the main thing is it's information on both very good and very bad agents and editors. And finally, MediaBistro.com, which has online courses for writers. Wow. Well, that's, I mean, you, you, I think you've answered for everyone. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. So, and you've actually, you've given a, a lot of work to our faithful podcast officer who, who is with us tonight, but not, not talking, Ruby Tuesday. Just like to say, hello, Ruby Tuesday. And thank you very much for being our wonderful podcast officer. She does the show notes afterwards. Um, so if you missed any uh, recommendations from Donna, just go to our website, podcast.latopia.com, and you will find show notes together with links. Beverly, would you like to add to this impressively growing list? I'm not sure I can. Um, to go along with predators and editors, there's agentquery.com. That's a good site in that you can select a genre, fiction, nonfiction, and it'll bring up the agents who handle that so you can sort of target your, your submissions a little better that way. Uh, the agents themselves apparently try to keep up with it and keep the information current. And then my all-time favorite, Barnes & Noble. Uh, .com. I use Barnes & Noble primarily for out-of-print book searches, and the beauty of that is it'll bring, it, they're linked in with a lot of independent uh, used booksellers so that you can get a good range of prices. Instead of bringing up one or two, it'll bring up every single one so that, you know, if, if you want a reading copy as opposed to a first edition, it, it enables you to do that. I have found books that I've been looking for for 30 years. You know, just type in the title and suddenly, oh, there it is. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Beverly. Um, I don't know, uh, Karen, if you've got any any suggestions um, to, to add to this? I've got some um, jacketflap.com who are one of the most welcoming bunch of people I've met, and they are mainly writers. Um, I think I've just been invited on there by accident, bless their hearts. <laughs> Um, but they're really helpful um, and feed each other information. The other one is um, bookfaironline.com, where a lady called Francesca is trying to set up a virtual book fair wow. so that self-publishers and individual authors can get their books the same exposure. And it's really early days and it's a brand new site. And Francesca is offering um, 
free credits to get your books on there for the first couple of months. So that could be an interesting one for authors. Um, a books I use for all my out of print books. Yeah, me too. Like that. Yeah, I love a books. Yeah. And there's a one that I've recently discovered called the shortstory.org.uk, hmm. which is all about the medium of short stories and how that's being promoted and where to go to get your story published. And and that's it for writers' sites. I'm afraid. Fantastic, Karen. You're a real fangirl. Terrific. <laughs> Thank you. And lastly, but by no means least, are an antiodromic friend. Yeah. An antiodromic, huh? Dave, yeah, anything to add? Well, I think they've done the whole net, actually. I think we have, yeah. We're, yeah. we're at the end of the internet uh, now. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, the bits we'd want to go anywhere near, anyway. Um, the one that I picked out, because I didn't know I had to get more than one, so I haven't done my own work properly, um, is it's, a, it's the website of a writer I have never read primarily because the bad guys in his books are called buggers and you just it would never sell in britain would it come here you buggers you know it's, it wouldn't work for me um and it's also scott card's website ah, yes. uh, which is hat rack river no just hat track.com and um he's got some great writing lessons research areas writers workshops really helpful down-to-earth straightforward advice for people uh, learning the craft of writing it's really good fantastic wow wow what can i say it's a real value-packed episode tonight thank you very very much to everyone who's taken part we have heard from beverly gray dave bartram donna ballman and our very special guest a publisher but you know don't hold that against her because she's really revealed herself to be more like one of us actually uh, Karen Wenborn, who is Managing Director of Classical Comets. Thank you so much to everybody for taking part. It's been a fantastic uh, show. We have learnt Enantiodromia, um, which I'm going to go away and memorise. And, hey guys, why don't we all do it again next week? Take care. Bye. Cheers. Bye now. Bye, everyone. Bye, Bye. everybody. And now for the Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Latopia Writers Colony, www.latopia.com. If you've enjoyed it, please give us some good word of mouth and tell all your friends about us. Show notes and links referenced in this episode can be found at www.latopia.com slash podcast. If you're not already subscribing to the podcast through iTunes, and remember iTunes works both on the PC and the Mac, then we suggest you do so right now. You'll find it by far the easiest method of listening. Full instructions on the Latopia website. And if you do use iTunes, why not give us a review there too? Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you, and we'd be delighted to receive your thoughts, comments, views, and suggestions. There's a handy and easy-to-use comment form on the Latopia website itself, but also you can send us an email, or you can even record your thoughts as an MP3 file and send that to us too. Our email address is podcast at latopia.com. This is Peter Cox thanking you for listening and looking forward to being back with you again soon.